Hi guys, and welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. I'm here with Luke. Luke, how are you? Very good, sir. How are you? All good, thank you, man. We are on Q&A episode five, um, and we have a bunch of questions that you sent in from social media, lined up and ready to go. Uh, we'll try and get this wrapped up in kind of 35, 40 minutes, so it's nice and bite-sized and not too long. Uh, and the goal for the next few weeks is to just drip feed some, it's almost like pre-course learning material or pre-course knowledge bombs um, to get you drawling in the mouth for the seminar. Uh, yeah. It'll basically be just a little bit of uh, an introductory run through of some of the topics we'll be covering in more depth in September, um, just to give you and the guys that are going an insight into some of the background um, thinking behind what, what the topics we're going to be covering are. Um, but there's loads of questions we've got, we've got in today that we can dig into uh, and move from there. Luke's going to start up with the first one regarding fiber, because fiber is Luke's thing. Um, yeah. Luke, far away. So I don't know who this is from, because it was on your WhatsApp. But um, so, so first one on fiber, he says, can eating too much fiber be an issue if you have flatulence after eating too much veg or flax seeds? Is it a type of veg that triggering that's triggering it or is it the total amount of fiber? And this is like common. There'll be loads of people out there that can kind of relate to when you've increased your fiber intake and then your gut gets a bit messed up. And um, this is where there's, there's another camp with regards to the gut microbiome that is pretty interesting and is, is, I was first turned on to it by uh, Dr. Michael Ruscio, who has an awesome podcast. And we're, I'm, we're looking to get him on here to actually talk about this very topic, but I'll cover it a little bit now. Um, but basically, there's the, he, he's gone through some of the same stuff that Will Bolshevitz spoke about on our guest interview, um, during our guest interview, uh, with regards to fiber. And, and he, you know, so you're looking at people in, in Africa that have loads of fiber and they consequently have a much more diverse range of gut bacteria. Um, and that if we were to increase our intake of fiber in like the Western world, and Western society, we would, you know, we would increase our diversity of micro microbiota and that would be a good thing. And that's a bit of an assumption. And what Michael, uh, Dr. Ruscio has done is he's basically looked at that, from quite a pragmatic standpoint actually and and basically you know comes to the conclusion that while it increasing fiber would increase the amount of diversity in your microbiome that isn't necessarily a good thing it's potentially dangerous for some individuals to kind of extract the diet out of a certain culture without considering all the other factors um like the the fact that how these people live is very stress-free and they they're you know outside a lot and, and they get a lot of physical activity and all this stuff um but you know the main thing is like in the western society that we live in now a lot of us have these hyperactive immune systems due to the kind of sterile nature of everything and how we've been growing up with you know we've grown up with antibiotics and things like that and what can actually happen is even when you consume a lot of fiber and trigger the growth of, of more beneficial bacterial strains in your gut even just the the increased growth of those guys is enough to kind of mess with your immune system and cause a bit of issues with regards to gastrointestinal distress. Um, 
and it basically boils down to people with a more sensitive immune system are the guys that will tend to not benefit as much from increasing fiber and in turn it seems that such individuals will be the guys that benefit more from diets that technically starve their microbiome and don't give them the opportunity for growth in the same way and that's where implementing like higher fat and even ketogenic approaches can be beneficial for a lot of people because you 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 prevent this overgrowth and and kind of mean it allows your immune system to calm down whilst also managing things like inflammation from more of a dietary standpoint rather than going through the microbiome and stuff like that and this is where it gets quite complicated but the point is it is very common and there's a lot of people that will get those issues and it's if if you're such an individual potentially try going down that other kind of extreme approach of not going down the fiber approach i'd say don't eliminate fiber just don't push it to crazy levels and then you know try and shoot for about 30 40 grams and see where you stand but then also think about driving fats up and, and maybe predominating your diet with with fats as, as the kind of calorie intake and seeing being how things stand you might find that that's um that improves and like i've had a few clients recently where we've been pushing fiber intake and kind of meeting these issues of getting gastrointestinal distress and since we've kind of pulled everything down and increased fat intake things have actually improved massively in those individuals and and these are all individuals that had quite high exposure to antibiotics when they were younger and have had a lot of gastrointestinal issues so it seems like there's some validity to that um, hypothesis of of dr ruscio so definitely one to consider Mm. where did you read about that um where where, where could you refer people to if they want to dr risha has written a good book um this big old book on the gut um which you can get on amazon healthy gut healthy you um and it's um that's a pretty good resource and um i'd that's what like he that's one of the good things he's done in that book is that he's taken a lot of these views and kind of come at them from a very research-backed pragmatic point of view and just offered kind of a counter opinion not kind of refuting them but just saying like okay there's you know there's there's a lot of validity in you know increasing fiber in certain individuals but we all know someone that doesn't and here's why and then he's done that throughout the entire book as well so it's a good it's a good book and definitely recommended sweet okay mm. um that probably wraps that one up yeah you want to read out the um the carbs one yeah so the same guy has asked um he's been discussing with his peers two camps on the question of carbohydrates around the workout there is one that advocates pre and post training window um and there's another one that doesn't think that the pre-workout meal should be made of carbohydrates because it can take a, generally a lot longer than two to three hours to convert it to glycogen, as in to convert that glucose to glycogen. Um, so they advocate carbs with post-workout meal and the last meal of the day. Uh, what's yours and Luke's take on that? So how's going to take this one? Uh, I've, I've definitely heard this before in regards to carbohydrate timing. Um, and I think, to be honest, the only re- the only scenario where I'd potentially specifically place carbohydrates within those meals are if carbs within the diet are relatively scarce. 
Um, and for example, if, if you're on implementing a nutritional plan with a lower carbohydrate focus and we wanted to pick, you know, biggest bang for our buck times where carbohydrates are potentially going to be most valuable in terms of their ability to absorb and be, be, be utilized. Also the fact that, you know, when's the most appropriate time for us to take them on board from a performance perspective and a recovery perspective, um, post-workout simply the fact that we've got, um, you know, exercise can acutely induce, uh, more glucose translocation in the skeletal muscle, uh, and have the ability to, uh, kind of promote, uh, a heightened state of glucose metabolism. So our ability to benefit from those nutrients post-training, if, stress is being managed and if your kind of readiness to eat post-workout in terms of you balancing the nervous system post-training is going to be met so not rushing into a post-workout meal taking your time allowing resting heart rate to to, to go back to where it needs to be etc um yes that's going to be a, a pretty darn good time to eat a larger bowl of carbohydrates and then pre-bed you know you've got a longer you've got a longer window of, of time there where these, these nutrients can then absorb and, and be capitalized on the next day. And glycogen can be replenished, so to speak, um, not that it may have been depleted in the first place. Um, and also the fact that if we've got a, a, you know, a high carbohydrate meal pre-bed, then we probably got a premise to say that it's going to have a beneficial impact on the sleep cycle potentially relative to their ability to digest that meal. Um, you know, due to the fact that you know, carbohydrates are going to increase um, kind of certain hormones that will start to induce um, a higher quality of sleep and potential uh, calming effect of the nervous system in the first place and the brain. Um, I think from someone on a higher carbohydrate intake, it's very difficult to fit, you know, a larger carbohydrate intake into to two or three meals. And from my perspective, I've seen in the past when I've tried to say somebody was on a take a random number say five six hundred grams of carbs and we try and deliberately fit that into just post-workout or just pre-bed their ability to a maintain a pretty um effective digestive state in terms of breaking down food is going to be impaired because we're having much larger meals than potentially we need to uh and b blood glucose management the higher we cram in regardless of whether it's post-workout the higher we cram in in each meal time the more we're stretching our ability to actually um you know assimilate and absorb those those nutrients and even even with the heightened state we have post-workout for the sensitivity of insulin um in terms of the effectiveness of insulin and also the the ability for us to metabolize glucose even if we drive that up too high um you know that can still massively impair um, postprandial blood glucose readings and your ability to break down that larger bolus of of glucose in one sitting so i typically for most people spread it out um i've done it before where you know if if they were having a training window at say 2 p.m and they had two or three meals prior to that they don't have the carbohydrates in the in the in the kind of last meal prior to their training they have it in the first or second so you've still got kind of a four to six hour window between that carbohydrate consumption and the training window um but i think the whole premise behind it's very very unlikely that you're actually going to get someone in the first place that is completely depleted of glucose going into a training session if they've got mm. carbohydrates within the diet like it's not going to happen unless you're like uh, unless you're a 
you're doing something very glycolytic in terms of the energy system being used for the exercise you're doing and it's over a long long period of time um you know it's very unlikely for someone that's training in the gym for a hypertrophy specific reason to be going into anything completely rid of glucose there's always going to be some form of store there so um, the, the the need for you to time those meals specifically for carbohydrate probably isn't as as uh, pressing as you may think it might, might be um, and it's very easy to get over anal about those things but like it has the, the, the concept behind it it makes perfect sense but it's application um, you know is it, is it needed probably not but you know for, for me in those plans anyway they're gonna have most of them are going to have carbohydrates pre-bed. Most of them are going to have carbohydrates at other times of the day. And that you've got to think like the carbohydrates in that meal are also going to fuel and, and start to prepare for the following day's training. So um, there's always going to be some form of substrate there unless, you know, like I said, they're, they're quite a unique specimen that, that's partaking in a sport or, a, or an activity that's going to be very glycolytic over a longer period of time that's going to actually metabolize, metabolize what they're taking on board very, very quickly. Mm. Would you agree? Hundred percent, and um, I think what you mentioned with the pre pre workout carbs, um, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily worry too much about it taking two three hours to convert to glycogen, um, especially if a lot of that glucose is just going to go straight through glycolysis anyway. Um, you won't need to kind of go through the whole glycogen synthase synthesis you know, process, but um, also. Um, it, it boils down to what you're kind of implementing, like how someone feels. You get a lot of people that have carbs pre-training, they feel unbelievably good. And then you get a lot of people that have carbs pre-training and it impacts performance in a negative way. You know, that's where it's individual. Um, but you you also get people from, you know, I've been, like I said, there's individuals where we've kind of gone through a ketogenic approach recently and we're still implementing carbs in their diet. And that's where there's like a bit of a, people don't, realize that you can still consume carbohydrates during and, and like in a ketogenic state um because you're not you know your, your body's still able to use glycogen or glucose as a fuel and it's also like your body's unbelievably stingy with muscle glycogen as well like even in people that are like fully keto adapted you're still going to have glycogen stores because your body's always going to want that source of energy for those like really dangerous flight and you know fight and flight moments where it's got to save itself it's always going to retain something so you, your capacity for glycogen storage is, is always going to have some kind of baseline that will never kind of completely eliminate especially in muscle um but also you get people that are in a ketogenic state and when you're in a ketogenic state and you're trying to retain muscle tissue and perform well in the gym you're not going to have that same capacity to perform well at like high intensities, which as you would on a on a when you're fueled with with glucose, um, so having carbs in a pre-training window there, which you then use for the session, kind of burn through, and then by the time you finished or you know later in the day, you're back into a ketogenic state, is also a pretty good tool. Um, so there's you know pre-workout window there, you could you know that's the time where you could use carbohydrates, but um, I, I think. I think how covered that and it is largely individual. We have to look at it. Yeah. Mm. It's cool. Um, Fruit? So next. Yeah, so we have a question from Sam. Um, 
I was reading, I think it's Sam, it's Sam Sorter and I was reading it as Sam's laughter. <laughs> it's all one word. Um, but he, um, so he said fruit, at what point should we limit fruit intake, e.g. increasing carbohydrate from fruit versus starch sources? Uh, fructose versus glucose implications for replenishment performance and are there better periods to consume fruit pre versus post workout? Um, and th- this obviously ties in quite nicely. Um, um, but basically, obviously, the fruit intake comes down to if if you you know if you're looking to increase food volume, um, you can handle fiber pretty well. You're looking for ways to increase micronutrition. Increasing fruit intake is a damn good idea, um, and it tastes damn good. Um, pre-workout, like we'll get, I'll get into the fructose glucose implication in a sec but like pre-workout i would prefer um basically well basically fructose is no i have to get into it now so fructose is basically um metabolized very differently and assimilated differently to glucose um in that it and this is where you get a lot of people who've who've jumped on the bandwagon of fruit makes you fat and fructose makes you fat because of how glucose uh fructose enters the cell um and and how it gets processed in the process of of glycolysis and fructolysis and and basically when glucose enters a cell um it is uh it goes through the process of glycolysis where it's um basically phosphorylated and all this stuff and you get when atp is generated via glycolysis which is when um glucose has entered the cell it inhibits an enzyme that basically allow prevents unnecessary energy or excessive energy production in cells so it kind of when when the cell has like positive cellular energy balance so when there's enough energy in the cell this enzyme gets inhibited and it kind of prevents further excessive um energy production which will then kind of lead into excessive fat storage if things get out of control Problem is, is when fructose enters the cell, it bypasses that rate-limiting step, and um, can basically kind of create a lot of energy very quickly, um, which is a good thing. But it's also a bad thing if you overconsume on it because a lot of that excessive energy can go into fat storage. Pre-training, this uh, using fructose is not a bad idea as long as you don't go overboard because of how quickly it can be used as energy. So fruits in the pre-training window. You get a lot of endurance athletes using fructose in their actual like interest shakes, like while they're while they're training um, and in the pre-workout window. And there's been a lot of stuff shown like fructose um, leads to faster liver glycogen replenishment because it basically mostly gets processed in the liver and it goes through um, a process in there that can lead to pretty fast liver glycogen replenishment. In, with regards to the muscle tissue itself, it doesn't tend to do a lot, so. It, it, it's not the most effective there but it is effective at producing fast energy so pre-workout window fruit's not a bad shout um but with regards to optimizing insulin sensitivity preventing excessive uh, fatty acid synthesis you wouldn't want to over consume on fructose really at any point um and that and a lot of you look at all the studies that have been done on, on fructose that um kind of it as a very easy tool for fat gain 
they'll typically be giving the the study participants like an inhuman amount of uh, of fructose which then obviously causes this fat gain and then it leads them to conclude that fructose is bad the problem is you're rarely going to find cases where people consume that much fructose in in everyday life in one sitting unless you're going through like liters of you know or quite a significant amount of 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 fizzy drinks that are made with uh, artificial sweeteners and things like high fructose corn syrup and things like that um and you know to to consume enough fruit to to cause excessive fat gain is a very difficult thing to do and fruit in general is just is mostly been found to be like anti-obesogenic and improve lipid profiles and stuff like that so you're probably unlikely to to be able to do it with fruit unless you start going down the route of dried fruits and stuff like that. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about over consuming on fruit. I'd be worried about over consuming on the, the like processed high fructose beverages and things like that. Um, things like honey, things like agave nectar. Um, they're both very high in fructose, but again, it doesn't mean avoid it. It just means just be careful with how much you, you consume of it but also you're probably going to benefit most from having it pre-workout because it's going to do more for energy production and not as much for glycogen replenishment within muscle tissue. It will replenish the liver, but if you've just trained and you're looking for muscle glycogen replenishment, you're probably going to want to go for a more glucose-heavy source of carbohydrate. Um, Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, and that's a rabbit hole. That kind of gives you an idea of not all carbohydrates are created equal and, and all this stuff so it's a good question um so do you want to take intra workout well we'll just read the uh question back again uh at which point is so same same guy uh at which point is an intra uh intra shape necessary is it beneficial is it always beneficial or only in training phases with high volume and muscle damage versus prep phases with higher metabolic slash aerobic output or when carbs and calories become difficult to consume through whole food and uh, do you have a preference of intra-workout or increasing carbohydrate post-workout? That's a good question. So I think from the perspective of adding it in in the first place, you've got to come back to the fact of kind of overviewing um, the requirement for it in the first place and then that individual's ability to actually benefit from it. Um, you know, we've got to consider the fact that, um, you know, digestive function, partition nutrients, stress management, um, all needs to be in place before you then add in a food source or something that needs to be absorbed at a time where stress is going to be very, very high during a training session or whatever. Um, and from a, from a, like a, partitioning of calories across the day perspective i'm only going to add this in when we've got a pretty decent substantial amount of food at other key times of the day so we've already got you know a a good bonus of carbohydrates post training um you know we may have some carbohydrates prior to the workout earlier in the day whether it's pre or whether it's earlier earlier than that um uh, you know training intensity is going to govern greatly how much this is actually going to be benefits from the first place if somebody's got a you know somebody's new to training and they're relatively um low on the scale of kind of exertion in regards to how hard they can actually work in in a set and how hard uh, how 
good their work capacity is across the session in terms of their ability to handle volume or their ability to train at a threshold that's actually going to warrant putting nutrition during a training session. Uh, you know, There's quite few people in the grand scheme of things. You've got to be relatively advanced to um, bring this on board, from my opinion, in the first place. Um, you've got to consider the fact that as well, from any perspective of any kind of underlying gastrointestinal issues, you're placing another, regardless of what you use, you're placing another stress on the digestive tract whilst if, if you're taking on board nutrients that need to be digested and absorbed um, during a training session. And obviously you're going to be relatively sympathetic while you train, um, you know, partition, partitioning nutrients is going to be impaired as it is during a, during a state where the nervous system's in that, in that response. So, um, you know, we've got to have our shit together before we start adding things like this into the diet. Uh, I think from a, a, an energy system perspective in terms of phases across the year, you could use it in a phase where you're trying to drive as much of an anabolic response as possible, potentially when food is creeping up. It's all, you know, I've used it as a tool in the past where it's, it's about kind of a catch 22 where I've used it as a tool in the past where, you know, if other meals are being exhausted and you need another window of opportunity to add nutrition into, uh, you know, all being well, they can actually benefit from in the, in the first place in regards to a di digestive perspective. It is another window of opportunity where we can add nutrition in, we can minimize protein breakdown, we can increase our ability to kind of carry nutrients within the workout. Um, if you imagine something like cyclic dextrin, due to that molecular structure of being um, kind of a cone-shaped molecule, its ability to carry other molecules with it is 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 great. So when we're pairing that with things like um, amino acids or you know whether you're doing whey with it, with branch chains or essential amino acids, it, it, it's a good carrying agent to drive other nutrients into, into the cell. Um, but that being said, um, you know, we've got to make sure that we're actually requiring that in the first place. So you know, off season phases where calories are high, then it's definitely got its place. I, I, from my perspective, it's very easy for people to say, right, I'm going to add intra workout carbs in, I'm going to put, you know, 60, 80, hundred grams in when you're never going to require that amount of nutrition during a training session relative to your training intensity or the length of your sessions. So start low. You know, even if it's 15, 20 grams and just leave it there because um, that's going to be far more than sufficient for most people. And if you need to increase as calories increase, as long as you're not getting any gastrointestinal stress, then do so. Like I've been up to 100, uh, 125 grams before, but obviously grand scheme of things, I was on a very high carbohydrate intake. Um, you've got to consider the fact that a lot of people that will be taking larger boluses of um larger boluses of carbohydrates around training um, that you'll see on fucking social media and all sorts of skewed versions of reality is the fact that a lot of bodybuilders are either going to have an extremely, extremely um, effective ability to metabolize glucose, or they may be using things like exogenous insulin, which is going to increase your ability to capitalize on these things anyway. Um, and I think, like, I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, Milos Sarchev started to popularize the whole kind of loading of nutrients around a training session and would, you know, use a certain amount of IUs of insulin um fast acting insulin around training sessions to allow individuals to capitalize on uh, a kind of a super physiological amount of carbohydrates around a workout to drive a as big a anabolic response as possible but you know as, as me and luke have 
discussed before, there's only a certain amount of time that an individual is going to be able to get away with that before it starts biting back. And the amount of inflammation you're causing in that window is very, very high. So it's not by any means a long-term solution or a sustainable solution to putting on muscle tissue. Uh, and you see the guys that are doing this over a long period of time, you know, that is going to be compromising a health and long-term function of um, what's going on. And I know for a fact that, you know, it's pretty obvious to see that if you're doing these things to almost trick the body into accumulating lean tissue at a heightened state, then as soon as you take those factors away, you're going to liberate tissue that you gained. Uh, and it's a very fragile place to be when you're using you know, super physiological amounts of, of food and using carrying agents to put them in cells. Like you, you're mm -hmm. creating that from a exogenous, um, an exogenous carrier. As soon as that carrier is gone, then it's not going to stick around. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, from a, that was a complete tangent. Um, from a, uh, like a, the types that we can add in to give you like a little bit of an overview, probably the most popular source that you'll have, um, you know, accessible nowadays, and it's not actually that expensive anyway. Now, uh, highly, highly branched cyclic dextrin, um, you know, cyclodextrin is made up of uh, probably the main reason why this has been popularized is its ability to um, kind of clear the small intestine very rapidly uh, and create pretty minimal gastrointestinal stress. Okay, um, so those would be, um, you know, one of our go to's in regards to. Uh, supplementation of intra intra workout mm. carbohydrates because um, it's just going to be a, a, a glucose solution that's absorbed very very well within the um, intestine and, and, and creates minimal minimal stress uh, and if you look at a lot of the studies you've got to look at Vitargo is relatively similar in regards mm. to um, its ability to absorb um, and it's, it's it, the stress that it's causing on on the gut itself uh, but like you've got the, the other end of the the chain there the under, other end of the spectrum you've got things like um the older versions that were popularized you know five ten years ago like waxy maize starch dextrose um they're all doing a very similar job but the rate at which they're absorbed is going to be different um and the rate at which the body can then kind of assimilate them as well absorb and assimilate them is going to be different as well so those guys are going to be more shorter chain um molecular chain structures um, and with that, it's going to require, it's going to have a rapid, uh, it's going to have a rapid impact on the replenishment of glycogen, but it's also going to have a rapid impact on blood glucose levels. And one of the biggest benefits of cyclic dextrin is it's cleared through the small intestine very quickly, but it's only impacting blood glucose at a very slow rate. So you're not going to get, you know, I've had it before years ago where I'd use like, uh, whey and dextrose shape post-workout and you've got to think both of those both of those nutrients are going to clear extremely quickly and they're going to have a very very abrupt impact on blood glucose so you go through the roof and then after that feeding you then drop through the floor um, mm. getting these series of hypos every time you had it um, just because of the fact that glucose and maltodextrin as soon as enough is absorbed into the small intestine you'll have something called a dumping effect which is where you know there'll be a lot that will kind of coagulate together um, and, and sap together it will drop into that digestive tract and it will get absorbed all at once as opposed to the cyclic dextrin which is absorbed at a slower rate um, so once that stuff's all absorbed at once, it's going to have a massive impact on blood glucose. And obviously from a higher postprandial reading of blood glucose, it's going to drop, it's going to drop quite abruptly as well. Um, 
So I'm not a big fan of maltodextrin or dextrose. They're typically ones that will cause more digestive stress as well because of that. Uh, but you know, I've used I've used um, cyclic dextrin with a lot of people, but for a for a prep phase, it's got a a lot of people won't want to use it through prep because they'd rather eat food because they might be you know trying to improve satiety through the diet. Uh, I know for a fact that when it gets to a certain period of time for most of my prep guys, I'll, I'll take it out because I'm looking at places where we could probably do it without calories. And if they've got, you know, some carbohydrates pre-training and they've got some carbohydrates post-training, if you're four or three weeks out from a show, you certainly don't need to be drinking carbohydrates when you're fucking hungry as well. So mm. um, they're going to be better served in a meal where you can actually get some form of satiety, some form of fiber and, and a better profile for nutrients as opposed to just just glucose um you know it would have premise if you were going to go through more of a glycolytic training phase and you're using that energy system more where you could potentially place more in intro or during training carbohydrates within that training phase but um i know for 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 a prep guy or girl regardless of their ability to metabolize glucose and their output i'd always want to get it from food just simply due to the fact that I know that they're going to be able to hold a higher level of satiety when they're actually eating their, when they're actually eating their, eating their carbohydrates. Mm. Uh, I think also it's worth mentioning like those two cheaper ones you mentioned, like multidextrin and dextrose, given their kind of lower molecular weight and the fact that they'll sit about in your stomach when in your digestive tract for longer. Um, they're also going to pull a lot more water and fluid in there to be able to get you know deal with them, which will potentially impact performance. And you notice that yeah. with some where they can switch over to something with a high molecular weight, like highly branched cyclodextrin or vitargo, and they notice not only an improvement in gastrointestinal like uh, how well comfort, and then also their performance as well because they're essentially not hindering it in the same way. Yeah. Um, and another reason, I mean, I like to use it is where I'll tend to, I'll tend to cap personally uh, with a lot of clients and with self. I, I don't like to go above sixty grams of of carbohydrate in in the training session purely due to like when you factor in, and it, it obviously this varies depending on the individual and their size and, and all this stuff. But like the liver generally is only going to be able to process like sixty grams of glucose an hour. And that's at not in a stress state. So when you're in a stress state, you're probably going to be able to drive that. And that's probably going to go down a bit. So going above 60 grams on that logic alone, I just don't, I tend to see best results when you don't exceed that. Mm-hmm. Um, then also from a biochemical standpoint, I, I always like to look at it like the, the role of an intra when you combine it with something like an EAA supplement so an essential amino acid supplement which is probably all you'd ever need i don't particularly like pepto pro even though a lot of people do uh, yeah. um, it's fucking expensive as well so. yeah it's, if it's, for what we're trying to do like eaas do exactly the same thing it's a lot cheaper um bcas are shit <laughs> but, um, the uh but when using it you're basically able to manipulate muscle protein breakdown from like the very start of a session or depending on when you, you start eating it which is overall going to contribute to like an increased rate of protein synthesis which obviously doesn't equal muscle gain but it's going to kind of prevent you know well increase your chances of it but you're also going to be able to increase levels of insulin whilst also having a, a higher presence of cortisol which you know when you look at that from a biochemical standpoint like with the inflammatory uh 
kind of environment that you're creating in the session itself and then coupling that with the inflammatory actions of, of insulin and the oxidative damage you're creating you can trigger some pretty cool overcompensatory pathways for, for muscle growth so from a muscle but like growing tool it can be pretty useful from that front as well mm. um but yeah cow, cow nailed that nailed that beauty um Martin, last question fiber we've done fiber we've done pre or post we've done fruit we've done intracar yeah so there's actually there's, there's one question which i'll just cover really briefly it's a good question um there'll probably be some people that wondered this uh, you know would it be possible for someone to have a microbiome that is of a high quality like minimal to no digestive issues good immune system and so on without having to employ any of the strategies that we've spoken about on the last few podcasts and then on the other hand is it possible for someone someone's microbiome to be so far gone and beyond repair um but not due to a medical condition um my opinion would be uh yes it's possible to have someone who can go through pretty much their entire life without any digestive issues and eat pretty questionable foods we all know people like that um whether they get absolutely no digestive issues is, is debatable but there'll be people that yeah you can absolutely get that it's pretty very common and those are the individuals where it still pays to be wary of what they're eating but you definitely be able to implement some foods that would be of an issue to others and you can kind of go more if, if there's foods that they enjoy but you know that you know things like dairy and gluten that can be issues for some it isn't necessarily mean you need to restrict them with everyone and with such individuals you can definitely allow for that flexibility um and then on the other hand is it possible for someone to have a microbiome that's so far gone and repair? i'd say no because like unless you have someone that's completely sterile uh, and that that's in like they have no microbiome which is never going to happen because you die um you're always going to be able to improve and recover it you may get people with some severe issues that you have to go to that whole approach that we spoke about before where you've got to kind of starve their microbiome as opposed to feed it but you you'll probably always be able to recover it um it would just take different approaches uh, so last question i reckon that we'll both have a stab at because it won't take too long um females getting constipated whilst dieting and strategies you would use to sort first off manage stress i get that but this year noticed it happened more often but only happening as we get halfway through prep and diet hasn't changed um what are your thoughts constipation through prep yeah so diet, diet, i mean you don't have any details on the diet so i'd say, yeah, say what, what's the diet in the first place yeah um but I, i'm assuming given that i'm assuming given the lack of fiber in most people's diets that fiber probably isn't being taken into account mm. um so i'd probably say figure out where fiber is if it's coming in at around 20 grams that's probably where the issue is but also you've got to consider prep is an extremely stressful time if you've got a, a woman that's going through it and they've been going through it for a while you're going to be depleting and, and their fiber intake slow you're going to be relying on like healthy um uh peristalsis and, and kind of the, the slow muscle contract smooth muscle contractions of the digestive tract to get things moving which is going to be reliant on adequate levels of things like serotonin um and if you've put them in a stress state for long enough and you deplete serotonin levels for long enough within the gut you're going to see things slow down and that could be why mm. so 
in which case it would be a case of potentially look at things like 5-HTP supplementation, um, increasing fibre intake from the get-go and implementing more strategies where you can balance out the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system. But you're going to get people that you go through prep and that sort of shit happens and, and that's what prep, you know, prep isn't a healthy thing, right? No. So. I, uh, yeah, it's, it, you want to see the, I think from a backbone to see the diet first to actually have a comment in the first place. But yeah, those points would be um, extremely valuable for male or female. Yeah. I, I suppose it comes down to like prepping to prep. You'd want to make sure going into a prep, fiber intakes in a good place gut health is a good place because if you have someone that's kind of on the verge of having a good gut or a bad gut you then put them through a prep and things go a bit dodgy whereas if you spent a few you know like a month or so well a month or so a few, a few months kind of making sure everything was on point you'd probably find that that was less likely to occur don't take clients on and go straight into a diet yeah bottom yeah. line yeah bottom line is just manage everything from the get-go make sure it's in a good place don't rush it that was um that was probably enough though yeah that was for 40 minutes on the dot so we actually, yeah and i suppose we had a good question on our thoughts on using intermittent fasting during a gaining phase oh, yeah. um and what we're going to do with that is because that's an area that we're going to cover a lot like fasting circadian biology um you know the, the impacts it has on gastrointestinal system and all this stuff we're going to delve into that a lot in the seminar so what we're going to do is we're going to the next podcast series is going to kind of go into all these areas so like the sleep fasting things of that nature that will kind of give you an idea of the things we're going to talk about in the seminar but we'll save that question for probably the next next episode uh, where we'll probably just do an entire episode on fasting yeah, that'd be sick. And it would lead, lead, lead a lot of those systems. It would lead well into the um, the seminar as well. So that would work well. Hmm. But yeah, that was awesome. And Luke is the fasting master. Five-day <laughs> fast. What, what, what protocol are you doing at the moment? It's still one a week. Yeah, well, I've been like I came back from holiday and I'm kind of done with dieting now in the sense of. I just want to get it over with. So I've sped things up and I'm doing, I've basically switched over to this kind of high fat approach to just see how it's, how it's working. And, and I've noticed some pretty cool stuff with regards to fasting that because my calorie intake is so low, I'm kind of reducing my, you know, my feeding window even further. But since I've done that, the ability, you know, since I've increased fats and, essentially more keto adapted i'm not doing a ketogenic diet but i'm able to run off well more fat adapted um energy levels it's become very easy and things like cravings have dropped through the floor as well so it's um there's some cool stuff to touch on with that um but at the moment yeah i'm just running kind of probably 16 to 18 hour fast a day um depending and uh that's kind of i've, I've pushed my training back to later in the day so i can do that as well and um yeah, things are good. Sweet. Yeah, we'll dig into that next episode. Um, and we also need to cover sleep as well over the next month. Um, we're trying to get someone onto the podcast to talk about that, but um, it's proving rather difficult to get hold of them. But we will. <laughs> we will. 
Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Cool. Awesome. Sweet. Um, we'll try and get a, another one out this week. And then try. Definitely. Get one definitely. Week. Sorry, I'll, I'll switch those words around. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. And apologies for the slight delay. I think we had a week hiatus. Yeah. It's it's poor. Apologies. Terrible. We've got some exciting stuff coming up next weekend, which we'll um, not tell you about yet, but that will be a project in the pipeline to be released sometime in the near future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll speak to you guys soon. Um, any more questions for the Q&As, keep dropping them in. We very much appreciate everything you are sending across. Um, and just remember everything we do say on this podcast is not medical advice. It is just two guys having some banter on a podcast. Don't do anything or take anything too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and always consult your like, yeah, healthcare professional if, you, if you're going to do it. So yeah. anything you've said. Exactly. Yeah. That was like, I was the same. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> I always forget it. Every single episode, I'm like, oh shit, I haven't said that. I know. You just put post it on my computer. Just write it on the screen. Right, guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. See ya.